Please be seated. For those of you who know me, know I am a tenor and not a basso profundo. I do have a cold. But we share lots of things in common. We were just discovering this morning, we believe that William Setterberg was ancient zero in this cold. It's now being passed among us. <clears throat> well, I'm glad you're here this morning. We're, uh, we're in the middle of the Olympic season, aren't we? Did you know that just two years ago, the most decorated Olympian in all of history was at the end of his rope? By his own account, he was thinking, this is the end of my life. How many times will I mess up? And contemplating suicide, he said, maybe the world would be better off without me. Then a friend, another athlete, gave him a book by Rick Warren, The Purpose Driven Life, and he encouraged him to turn his life around. And from all accounts, that happened two years ago in the life of Michael Phelps, and his own family, and his extended family, and even his career. They appear to be turned around. Well, this morning, friends, you and I come face to face with Jesus' call to discipleship. And there are two ways that we can respond to the call that Jesus has for us. One of them is to imagine that Jesus is like some kind of power-hungry politician. There's lots of those out there these days, aren't there? And what he wants is uh, for us to submit to him and for him to lord it over us. And maybe he's got a little bit of... uh, sadism thrown in there just for fun as he thinks about taking away all the nicer pleasures of life. But another way we might think about Jesus' call, as perhaps Michael Michael Phelps did, is to see that Jesus loves you. And Jesus' call to discipleship is based on his wisdom and his compassion. It is based in Jesus' deep desire for you to have real meaning and purpose in your life. For Jesus knows that however painful discipleship might seem at first, it is really the only true way that you and I are ever going to find meaning and fulfillment in our existence. Now, let me invite you to take out that green handout there. You should have one that looks like this. You really will need that this morning. Does anybody not have this? Ushers, would you see that everybody has one? Take out this green handout here. And let us consider Jesus' teaching about discipleship in Luke chapter 12. At the very heart of Luke's gospel story is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. From Luke 9... 52, all the way to Luke 19.10, there are 10 entire chapters that are dedicated to nothing but Jesus marching steadily upward, onward to the cross. Now, at first to outsiders, I'm sure this seems somewhat strange, perhaps even sort of masochistic. Strange, that is, until we begin to understand that it is only through death that Jesus is able to come to the riches of abundant life and the inheritance of the nations. When Jesus invites his disciples to join with him in his journey, 
he knows that, yes, indeed, he's inviting them to share in the cross with him, but he's also offering them the greatest investment opportunity ever. In fact, Jesus knows that following him is the only possible way of assuring a lasting reward in this life or the next. This is Jesus' invitation at the start of the journey. I've written it for you there in that little handout. In Luke 9, 23, he makes this invitation. And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now before we begin to dig into chapter 12, let's review what Jesus taught about the nature of this costly journey and its potentially great rewards. You can follow along with your handout there. The first thing that happens in Luke 9, 51 to 10, 24, we find Jesus issues a call to discipleship to everyone, but not everyone responds. Jesus comes to a Samaritan village, for example, and they refuse him. They don't even want him to come to their place. Get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. A little later on, he encounters three men that say, oh yeah, man, we're all in. But somehow they get completely sidetracked, and they never follow. But on the other hand, there are 72 that he invites to join him in the journey, and even to try their hand at some real scary stuff. Go out and proclaim the gospel. Well, they said yes, and they went off, and they returned full of joy. So, what accounts for the differences in these responses? Well, in the first two cases, you see, God gave them exactly what they wanted. They didn't want any or very much of Jesus. So that's exactly what they got. But we can't be surprised that then they don't get the joy that can only come from the Father through the Son. But with the 72, you see, they, God graciously granted them a heart to follow Jesus and to incline their affections toward him. Now this morning, if you are inclined toward being a disciple, then you thank God because God is the one that gave you that heart. That's what Jesus says there. And you continue to pray and say, God, continue my heart that I might love and follow you. Well, moving on in 1025 to 42, Jesus teaches his disciples about the charter of discipleship. You know what the charter of discipleship is? It's your two great commandments. Love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what you and I have been commissioned to do as disciples. And then he illustrates what that means with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, then Jesus continues on in chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Jesus teaches about the great work of a disciple. Now, disciples do all kinds of stuff, but you know what the great work of every single disciple is? Prayer. So Jesus gives them a model of prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. It's the framework. 
You don't have to know a whole lot about prayer. You don't have to be a great prayer warrior. The Lord's Prayer gives you the substance of all that you should pray. And then Jesus gives them a parable about preserving in prayer, and then he gives them the promise of prayer. Do you know what the promise of prayer is? No matter how the Lord answers your prayer, okay, and the only answer you will ever get to any of your prayers is according to God's will. That's the only way he'll answer your prayer, according to your will. It doesn't matter what your will and my will is. But there is one unfailing result of prayer every time the disciple prays. And that is, he or she will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every time you pray, God meets you and ministers to you in your heart. Moving on in verses 14 through 54, Jesus speaks about the essential quality of a disciple. The essential quality of disciple is spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. If one wants to be a follower of Jesus, then they need to understand where and how they are walking. They need to be able to distinguish light from darkness. They need to be able to distinguish light from darkness, not merely in other people's words and actions, but in their own heart. The disciple must learn to discern his or her own motives and attitudes. Well, that brings us to chapter 12 then. Now, if you've been paying attention over the last three weeks, we have been reading Luke chapter 12. That's what the gospel reading has been for the last three weeks. And I would propose for your thinking this morning that the first half of the chapter 12 of Luke can be summarized as Jesus' teaching concerning the disciple and purity of heart. The disciple and purity of heart. The first thing Jesus tells us is that purity of heart comes from a right fear of the Lord. In verses 1 through 7, Jesus counsels us, don't kid yourself. Don't imagine that somehow you can fool God because even our most secret inward thoughts will be made known when we stand before God. The second thing Jesus says is that purity of heart is revealed in public courage. The disciple, the courageous disciple, publicly claims Jesus as Lord. Now, you may think, well, wait a minute. What does purity of heart have to do with being courageous? Well, Proverbs 28.1 says this, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You see, the pure of heart have a singleness of devotion to the Lord. And they do not fear losing anything 
that they love in times of persecution. Because the only thing they fear is losing the love of the Lord whom they love above everything else. Now, friends, these are the times that try the disciples' soul. They are coming upon us, and they are here. Only if you have purity of heart, a singleness of devotion to the Lord, will you find the courage to stand, for the moment is coming. The third mark of purity of heart is given there in verses 13 through 31. The disciple whose heart is pure handles the goods of this world with great care. Now, we heard this last week, remember? In our gospel reading, Jesus was out in public and this man calls out, Hey, teacher, bid my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus' response is very instructive for his disciples then and for his disciples today. What does he say? Take heed against every form of covetousness. Western Christian, your African brothers and sisters pity you. Here is your constant temptation. Thou shalt not covet. Now, what is covetousness? Well, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure. <laughs> In fact, there are more than a dozen Greek words that cluster around this idea of greed. So I don't understand it all, but I do know this. The opposite of covetousness is contentment. And I also know this from personal experience. It is only a very short distance from loving God and using things to loving things and using God as if he were your genie. You see, the pure of heart does not love the things of this world. If you find that radical, Jesus says, beware. Secondly, the pure of heart handles the things of this world with great caution because he or she recognizes the very brief nature of all possession. Just imagine that tomorrow you could get everything you want. You know what your greatest sorrow would be? You're going to die real shortly, and you can't keep a penny of it. We all spend our lives wanting stuff. And about the time you get it, you're old enough to get it, you realize, in 10 years, I won't have any of it. In verses 16 through 21, Jesus warns the disciples about thinking that their possessions will carry on forever. Because in a blinking of an eye, we can lose the wealth of this world only to discover that we are 
poor toward God. Now, friends, are you rich toward God this morning? Thirdly, in verses 22 through 32, the disciple understands God's providence and he lives for the kingdom rather than for stuff. Now, why is it the disciple does not live his or her life for stuff? Almost all our friends do. That's what it's all about, isn't it? He who has the most toys wins. So why is the disciple different? Because he or she understands God's good providence. You see, God the Father longs, desires, wants, he can't wait to give you everything you need. He delights in blessing you so that you can be free from worry and anxiety about stuff to joyfully participate in his kingdom work. Now, this understanding of providence will also free up the pure in heart for the fourth point, verses 33 through 34. Because the pure in heart recognizes that they need to use the things of this world to gain the things of eternity. Look what Jesus said. I'm not making this up. This is not a works gospel. This is what Jesus said. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Out of Jesus' deep love and concern for the long-term welfare and prosperity of the disciples, he gives this command. Jesus is inviting them to participate in a cannot-fail program of eternal rewards. Now look, think about this. If I told you this morning, I invited you to give me one dollar, which in 40 years would return $10,000 a year forever, how many people would participate in that? Huh? Put your hand up, right? Not only would you hand me the dollar, you'd hand me a 10 spot and say, here, take it. And then you'd thank me for the opportunity. But that's exactly what Jesus is offering the disciples here. If only they have the faith to see and understand. So we come to the text for today, which is the last part of chapter 12. The disciple and preparation for the future. Now in verses 35 through 40... Jesus exhorts the disciples. He says, get busy. Get on with it. Start investing now. The time to be part of this incredible investment plan is short. It will come suddenly and irreversibly to a halt. And at the very moment you think, eh, I'll get to it next week. That will be the moment when it will all be over with 
and the tallying up will begin. See, that's why Jesus teaches in verses 41 through 48, he teaches his disciple that there are huge rewards and terrible losses ahead. Now, see if you can catch the gravity of what's being said here. Peter did. Peter got this. Look at verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Now, what's Peter saying here? He says, yeah, Lord, I got it. You know those Samaritans that wouldn't have anything to do with you? Yeah, I got that. Those three guys that were all in and really weren't? Yeah, I understand totally, Lord. Those guys are not going to get anything. I got this. But do you mean us? Us, Lord? Do you mean we, the disciples, could suffer loss? And I find Jesus' answer completely breathtaking. For those who use the things of this world, their time, their talent, their tithe, their situation in life, to the advantage of the kingdom of God, these disciples can expect huge rewards. The master himself will serve him at his table. Look what he says. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master will set over his household? He will give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will set him over all his possessions. Incredible rewards are coming. But... For those disciples who, through impurity of heart, fail to make a righteous investment. For those disciples, sorrow and regret on the day of the Master's return. He's not talking about the pagans. He's talking about believers. Christian, think of it. If you know these things, then blessed are you if you do them. Abundant rewards are coming. But every privilege and every possession which we have received brings with it increased accountability. Now the one who loves you and died for you speaks these things out of great concern for your eternal success. But he also knows this is not an easy word. And that's why in verses 49 through 53, Jesus acknowledges there's a price that must be paid to be a disciple. Short-term denial for long-term gain. Right now, at this very moment, Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father. And you know what he's doing? He's praying for you and for me. He's praying that God would give us the insight to understand the times in which we live. This is the moment for investment. This is the time that we've been given for using all that we have for the kingdom. Today, while it is still day, today is the day to store up an infinite treasure in the kingdom soon to come. 
May God give us grace to understand and respond. Amen.